Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchan, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Hey, it's Anna. I remember exactly where I was standing in my kitchen when I heard the episode we're going to share with you today. It was my first time hearing it because I was on maternity leave. It was 2019, and actor Mahershala Ali was one of our guest hosts while I was out. He had been a guest on the show before, and then he went on to win two Oscars, and we were thrilled when he agreed to do an interview for Death, Sex, and Money. Mahershala is from Oakland, and he asked to interview another actor from the Bay Area, Rafael Casal. I'll be honest, the conversation is such a blur because I was sitting across from somebody I deeply admire Uh who was asking me questions about me, which was wildly (laughs) uncomfortable because I was like, I want to ask you everything, but I'm going to try to resist because that's not the prompt. I called up Raphael in California, where he's preparing for the premiere of his new TV show, Blind Spotting, which is based on an indie movie he made with David Diggs by the same name. I asked Raphael what he remembered about his conversation with Mahershala. I think mostly what I remember is that Mahershala is a very generous conversationalist. Yeah. Um, and he, um, he's one of the more active listeners I've ever encountered. Um, and so it felt like a very safe conversation, oh. um, not in terms of subject matter, but in terms of um, the the care that every moment was um, was handled with. That spirit of generosity and listening really came through for me when I heard this episode. And I'm excited for you all to hear it today, especially if you're new to our show and haven't heard this one before. And by the way, if you want to hear any of our older shows, including with other guest hosts like Jason Isbell, Ellen Burstyn, or Tressie McMillan-Cottom, you can find them by clicking on Archives at DeathSexMoney.org. 
There's more from my recent phone chat with Rafael Casal at the end of the show. But for now, here he is in conversation with Mahershala Ali from back in 2019. I think for so long I was just so happy that I didn't end up in prison, which like I don't think I was aware then was so close. Hmm. You know, now I'm like, oh man, there was like a few moments where I remember just kind of sitting there going like, the shit that's in this room right now is 20 to life. I need to get out of here. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Taxis cost money, food costs money, and rent costs money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Bitch! Now I ain't no killer, you understand me? I need to talk about more. You're the only man that's ever touched me. I'm Mahershala Ali, and for Anna Sale. And last year, I saw a movie that I loved. I loved it so much, I've watched it, like, three times. And it's called Blindspotting. It's set in Oakland, California. I'm originally from the Bay Area, and I think blind spotting captures the Bay Area so well. The film is all about the messy intersection of race and class and rapid gentrification that's happening there right now. Bro, what the fuck is this green juice shit doing up in here? It's good for you. How much? Ten dollars. What? What is this, the blood of fucking Jesus? The fuck is in it that it costs ten dollars? Let me get one. I'm sorry, what? These are the two best friends at the center of this movie. Colin is the one who just bought the juice. He's a young black guy who recently got out of prison and absolutely doesn't want to go back. Miles is the one with the attitude. He's white, likes to wear a gold grill, and is always, always stirring up trouble. Their friendship is complicated, and I think it represents something I, I haven't really seen before on screen. The way in which races and people Culture really naturally mixes and melds together in the Bay Area. To me, that's a that's a result of because the Bay is so eclectic, both in yeah. like the melting pot that it is, but also like the different. There's really sort of obscure backgrounds that people come from. This is Rafael Casal. He plays Miles, the the white guy in Blind Spotting, and he co-wrote the movie too. Like me, he was also born and raised in the Bay Area. I think there we've developed this muscle to sort of really like take how somebody has given themselves to yeah. you and read that as fact. Right. Because we, we really cherish authenticity in the Bay, right? Yes. So everyone really guards their authenticity with everything, which means it's out front, which also mm. means that that authenticity out front maybe is not packaged for easy consumption. Mm. So we're also good at going, oh, you're a white dude, but you got that kind of Southern draw mm. and that hard R and you're like holding your jeans <laughs> and you've got, you know, and you're yes. tatted up, but you're not hipster tatted up. Right. I know who you are. Yes. You're like my boy Paco. Yes. He's like that too. He's yes. from East 14th, you know. Yes. That, that cultural meld is fascinating to watch. Raphael knows firsthand about that particular cultural meld. The actor, writer, poet, and rapper grew up in Berkeley in the 80s and 90s in a working-class neighborhood with parents of Irish and Spanish-Cuban heritage. He drew on that childhood of growing up white in a diverse neighborhood when writing his character Miles in Blindspotting. We always described him as a minority among minorities. Like, mm. that's mm. that's how he feels. He mm. feels like yeah. he's the minority. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. You know, which is, which is at times how I felt growing up around my friends was like, right. but I'm the only dude who looks like me at this point. 
sideshow. Right. Like I'm the odd man out. <laughs> yes. You know, like I'm the I'm scared out of my fucking mind yes. right now. Yes. We're we're doing donuts and cars, and everybody's looking at me to make sure I'm here with some people. Right. You know. Yeah. That's my entire upbringing. Um, let's talk a little bit about about you know growing up. You described yourself as as this sort of rebellious kind of knucklehead to <laughs> some degree, like growing up who was sort of inclined to to a certain type of trouble. So you had have that aspect to you. But then on the other side, you're this poet, lyricist, thinker with a real activist vein to you. Like how do those two personalities exist in one person and when when did they sort of converge? Yeah, still converging. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of the the sort of younger years of being a just like a little street kid was I mean it was it was self defense entirely right it's like mm. offense is the best defense mm. I think I was small mm. like so super small kid and so I think you start you start puffing up and doing stuff yeah. to just like send out a a warning call mm. to everybody like you know you mm. might whoop my ass but. <laughs> But I'm gonna get a hit in, or right. or I'm not, you know, I'm not a pushover. So you're trying to preempt anything that you, yeah, you could I think deal with as had a result a, of what you were seeing happening. Yeah, people, and little yeah. things that had happened to me that I was like, oh, we're not gonna let that. We can't let that keep going. Like if that happens twice, people see you get pushed around that way. You gotta, you know, push back. And Berkeley High at the time was violent and scary for like an eighth grade little kid mm. going in. You know, I remember when you got to Berkeley, like my first day at Berkeley High, I remember like walking into like from back from lunch or something, just saw like 20 bloods beat the shit out of some kids mm. from another school who came there to jump somebody. And I just watched this and was like, this is where I go to school, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm tiny yeah. and I'm looking at like my old skater friends who are like just folding over. And living in fear. Yeah. Um, and so I really found this misfit group of people throughout high school that were like, we just kept each other safe. Mm. And part of that safety was, you know, just doing what, what like young, rebellious people do when they get a group of friends mm. that make them feel powerful for mm. the first time, you know? Try to sort of find camaraderie in your shared discomfort yeah. or, or you know, or, or whatever that is that sort of derails teenagers. And for me, I was also dropping out of high school. Like, I was failing in class. I'd always had an attention problem. I'm sure I have chronic ADD as they've tried to prescribe me many times, but, like, I just... My parents are Berkeley parents. They're not putting me on pills. Mm. So... And how were they reacting and responding to the trouble you were finding yourself in? Yeah. How were they trying to to sort of course correct you? It was, I mean, it got it got real bad in high school. I think that was like my pops was sort of a like a thug growing up in mm. in Logan Heights in San Diego, right? Like mm. he's sort of from Vario Logan, so he gets like mm. you ride for your homies, you do your thing. This is a period that you go through in your life. So he was more concerned about like the extreme parts of the danger. He was more just like, am I just making sure that my kid isn't going so right. so hard that he can't come back from he's not gonna end up in prison. Mm. And so that was the that was the line I felt like he was guarding more. I think my mother was like, you're creative and smart and you've always had like an overactive imagination. You can do anything if you can just kind of figure out your way through this. Around that time in his early teen years, Raphael saw the movie Slam, 
the Saul Williams film about a young man who ends up in the prison system but has a real talent for poetry. Snorting candy yams that free my body and soul and send me like Shazam. Never question who I am. God knows. And I know God... I remember sitting there just going like, I could do that. Mm. Like, I want to do that. I want to... I want to be able to say what I mean mm. like that. And my sister was pushing me to go to these poetry slams. And I went and did that for the first time. I did terribly. Mm. But it was this acknowledgement of intelligence and creativity, you know. And in class, I would see the kids who were good at math and history and science and mm. all that, you know. Mm. They, they had had so much help. Mm. and so much they were so far ahead of everyone else and all my friends were kind of like we're lucky if we get out of here you know let's just try to get through this shit but over here in this poetry slam i can excel Mm. because it's new for everybody Mm. and suddenly like we're sitting around at home writing and sharing each other's stuff and i was just so happy that there was a thing Mm. that i was good at Mm. um that pulled me out of the obscurity of just kind of feeling totally lost. Yeah. And the, the the sort of lost space was just me and friends sitting around like drinking and smoking mm. and not going to class and whatever. The drinking and smoking and not going to class led to Raphael getting expelled from high school as a sophomore. But his interest in poetry had sparked. And he started competing in the local slam scene. He got really good. And at 18 years old, Alongside people like Talib Kweli and Kanye West, he was invited to perform on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam in New York City. You did a piece on 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 abortion, yeah, extraordinary piece. Share with us a little bit about the the, the story behind that poem, what it was about. I I I never watched that one. Hmm. I don't know why. Hmm. It might just be too close to home. I wrote it because maybe a week before I got on the plane to go out there. My girlfriend at the time was like, I'm pregnant and I'm going to, while you're gone, I'm going to get this taken care of with my mother. I don't want you to come. Hmm. I don't like, I want you to go do that. So it's just the only thing I could think about, I think, is I'm like a kid, you know. How conflicted were you about, about the choice she was making? I think it was just the absence of choice. Hmm. I, I think it was presented to me as a done deal. Hmm. And so then I was just sort of forced to just decide how I feel about it, even though it's inconsequential how I feel. Mm. Um, I had, ne- I, I think at the time I was trying to write things that I had never heard out of someone like me's mouth before. Mm. So I was like, well, what do I sort of, what do I have to offer in this moment? And I think I just ranted. I was like, this is, you know, this is how I feel about fatherhood. And this is how I feel about where my life is. Swimming backstrokes through Bush's petitions against what we, but ultimately what I am agreeing to do. But I can't be no father. Mother, make me your son again, because I can't do it. Mom, tell her, please, tell her I'm too young for man's shoes. Son, daughter, sorry, but I am not ready for you. Then I came back. I first, Maybe I was just trying to be dramatic, but I, like, I didn't tell my parents what the poem was about. So wow. they they found out about it on TV. That was probably like, we were probably still like navigating our distance too. You and you your know, parents? Me and my parents were probably okay. still navigating our... So you guys weren't close at that time? We were close, but like in, in a... I, I mean, I guess we weren't. I guess the high school had really pulled us apart in a lot of ways. Mm. And we were really just trying not to be angry. Uh, because, you know, they they didn't understand a lot of my 
choices of like, well, I'm just not going to fucking go to school anymore. And now I'm going to go get my car and I'm going to do poetry and like, (laughs) and I'm going to do rap music and that's going to be my life. But after a few years, that life started to lose its appeal. God, this can't be it. I don't want to be this like 40-year-old traveling poet person. Mm -hmm. This isn't, this was a stepping stone to something else. What is it? Coming up, Raphael finds a creative partner who helps him figure out what that it could be. What Raphael just said about navigating our distance. Man, when I was listening to this episode for the first time, it just hit me. I thought it was such a beautiful way to describe family from the perspective of a teenage boy. And those words stayed with me, so much that I quoted Raphael in my new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, in the chapter about family. I told Raphael that I really liked the line when we talked recently, and it turns out he already knew. My mother saw that um, sentence. I think maybe you had posted about it or you mentioned it in an article that was sent to her. I think one of her friends read it. And she just sent me that quote, like in a text that just said, navigating our distance. Um, and, and I think she just wrote like, great, or that perfectly sums it up. Oh. Like that also landed really well with her, which I don't think she had heard that interview um and that uh, i think that was a very rough time (laughs) for my relationship with them i think sometimes like the moments of clarity like that give a little bit of like loving closure yeah to something that we just sort of you know suddenly we were we worked hard to be friends again uh as adults and you sort of don't want to talk about it later because it feels like well what if we stir something up again Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that what if we don't agree on how it went and so to a certain degree like we we joke about it but we don't talk about it so i think that whatever came out of my mouth in that moment in that interview gave some peace i think to my mother about it uh, which was beautiful to get to say that sort of indirectly to her through through the interview. Wow, I love knowing that postscript. That's so cool. On the next episode, I talk with writer and musician Michelle Zahner. In her new memoir, Crying in H Mart, she explored her relationship with her late mother, Chong Mi, who died of cancer in 2014. She told me about their conversations in her mom's final days. She said to me, um, when you were younger, like you always, you always were used to like cling to me, and like here you are now, still clinging to me. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. But they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. 
I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Decoder Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Mahershala Ali, in for Anna Sale. Raphael Casal co-wrote the movie Blind Spotting with his creative partner, Davi Diggs. We'll get to that story of how they connected in just a minute. But by 2014, a decade into their creative partnership, they'd done a lot together. Music, plays, YouTube series. They left the Bay Area and moved to Los Angeles. And they started co-writing the movie script 
that would go on to become blind spotting. We kept almost making it, and then money would fall through, and we'd get a director attached, and they would have to split off to make something else. And you know, you, you just get that that roller coaster yeah. is exhausting of sort of the universe dangling your dream in front of you. And then David got cast in a show called Hamilton Went to New York. Wait, first of all, <laughs> first of all, I gotta say I have a quick little story. Um, I was in like I was living in New York, and. I was there right before Hamilton came out. And I remember I was in like a Starbucks and there was this girl in front of me who looked like a theater girl, mm -hmm. like a musical yeah, theater yeah. girl, you know. And she was just describing this musical or workshop she had just come back from. And she was like, yeah, it's all like, you know, historically accurate but it's like they're rapping and like she's going on about it and i thought to myself i was like that sounds terrible yeah like what is she talking about yeah yeah and then a few months later <laughs> this play hit yeah i went to see it and i was like this is genius yeah but uh but also what was your reaction but also, when david explained it to you same reaction he had he was like that sounds like a terrible idea but i'll do it because lynn and those guys were all his friends to bring him to task somebody give me some dirt on his vacuous mask so we can at last unmask him i'll pull the trigger on him someone load the gun and cock it while we were all watching he got washington in his pocket David went on to win a Tony and a Grammy for his roles in Hamilton. He also got cast in the ABC series Blackish. Basically, his career blew up. But that didn't mean the end of his partnership with Raphael. Okay, let's rewind for a second. Ten years earlier, back to 2004. Raphael was 19 years old, running a music studio in Oakland. David had just recently gotten back to the Bay Area after graduating from Brown University. And one night, he stopped by the studio. One of his friends was the older brother of one of my friends mm -hmm. and was like, hey, Rafael's got a studio. They're looking for artists. You should go over there. And it was like, he sat down. We had a bunch of, like, goonie motherfuckers in the studio. Mm -hmm. They all left. My guard came down. His guard came down. And we stayed there until 8 in the morning. We made, like, I don't know, six, seven songs. Then it was just like, oh, me and David do everything together. But you had met before that, though. You met, met in, high in high school, school right? Yes. You just crossed paths. So he's bit. four years older than me. So he yeah. was a senior when I was a freshman. So like I knew him, and he was in the poetry scene. Yeah. He was like a very free spirit dude. Like wore pajama pants every day, you know. <laughs> like he was like the the like cool artsy kid. Okay. You know, and I think I was like the goony kid who like secretly was an artsy kid. Yeah. What did when when you and 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 David? sort of clicked up, what did you find that you gave each other? I think then it was just like a lot of, of co-validation. Diggs was not only doing music, but he was in plays. I knew he came from poetry. He wanted to make weird music. Mm. And I was around some real just like hood dudes who mm. wanted to make like trap hood bass right. shit and he was like you know let's stray over here and uh and then you know two months later we're like writing a play together and uh i think we just realized that someone who can jump between mediums with you but knows you in all the other mediums mm. knows what you can do right and can help you find the through line between them which is and also just 
it's it's a rare gift to have that kind of friend that could sort of be a mirror and and, oh, yeah. and validate you in, in so many different mediums where it's hard to find people that you just connect with on one of those things that you may do well, let alone being somebody who has has. Do you have anybody like that? Um, you know, uh, I've found for myself, I've had to. I, I, I didn't know, not really. My father was was in musical theater, and he died before I started acting. Mm. But I was doing poetry at that time and performing mm. my poetry. And did and, he get to see you do that? Yes, he did. Huh. Which which for me told me I wasn't crazy and and really helped me locate something in myself. Mm-hmm. But the but to like come across someone who who one perhaps gets what you do, but also does what you do, those are different things. Yeah. I have all my friends get what I do, but none of them necessarily do what I do. And and so to see what you and David as at together and individually have have accomplished is is really inspiring for me and just so timely and something that I've needed to see oh, as I, I have opportunity to move into doing doing branching out in a real way that reflects old talents or things that have that have haven't been nurtured right in yeah. a long time but so I, I'm just actually just speaking to uh how amazing that is that you two have found each other we we talk about that shit all the time yeah. we're just like this is we're we got so lucky yeah um, but the constant now is like we remember being in a warehouse trying to record on a shitty mic and a mm. shitty computer just to get an idea out mm. so when now we're sitting there going like do we want to do this movie mm. we just step back and we're like this is ridiculous Raphael and David are now working on a second movie together after the success of Blind Spotting. It even made Obama's list of best movies of the year. But Blind Spotting wasn't a Hollywood blockbuster. We put a movie out, and everyone back home mm. thinks I'm on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, that was an indie movie. Right. I lost money. Right. You no, know what I mean? Like, that's really hard to explain to people. Like, when I'm like, I basically paid to do Moonlight, essentially. To, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, between PR, I what you get that. paid and what PR. <laughs> like, bruh, I, it was like a college project. You pay to do it in order f- for that to put you in a different place once you're done with that, right? Yeah. But economically, you're still poor. Yeah. You and David go back many years. And what's hard for you for the two of you to talk about is there is there a space or or subject matter anything that is challenging for you two to get get into i think we're both so hypersensitive to the other's comfort Hmm. that we found really good communication language to bring up things that are just super uncomfortable Hmm. like when we get an offer and my number is so much lower than his Hmm. How do we negotiate that? Hmm. And we've what we've created is he knowing and I, how you both individually in a room contribute to something. Well, is that he, what yeah, like is? something that we're going to evenly work on. Yes. but the offer came in huge for him right. and nominal for me. Right. We just sort of discussed early on, like, hey, for stuff we're going to do together, let's just make it even. Yeah. We got this other project we're working on, and I was like, hey, man, I, I really just want my name first on this one because I. I didn't get it on the last one. Yeah. And I just think a lot of people think like blind spotting was like you and then a little bit of me. Yeah. He was like, yeah. 
Yeah, I did feel that people thought that. So we'll mm. just switch it. Mm. Like, it's just, we just fix it. Yeah. Do, do you ever have a moment or any kind of fear of, of not having your own identity? Because of working so closely with David, who yeah. has a certain type of shine and attention on him as a result of a lot of work that he's put in. You yeah. Know? But, yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a thing that I think I prepped for hard when we were going to make the movie. Yeah. Um, but also, we have this phrase that we say together. We say, energy up, expectations down. Mm. That's been sort of the motto of our whole career is like, we're doing this out of sheer enthusiasm, but we don't really expect to get much. Mm. Um, and I think envy is a, is a hell of a drug and it's very, very easy to get caught up in it. Yeah. I would hate it if somebody I was less close to but partnered with had an explosion and like made money and got all this fame that might stir me differently. I don't know that mm. I can withstand that with everyone. Yeah. But I think what people miss are all the years that Diggs propped me up, mm. you know, as the front man yeah. and was just there. And they don't know that, but I do. That was Rafael Casal in conversation with Mahershala Ali in 2019. Rafael is starring in the TV adaptation of Blind Spotting, which premieres on Stars on June 13th. And he and Davi Diggs both executive produced it. The fascinating thing about uh, television uh, in, in 2020, 2021 is that... Um, the only way to make it is to do it in a pandemic. <laughs> so you have to really love the story or it's just not worth it. Um, you're asking 270 people to risk their health and safety every day to come in and tell a story that you, um, that you dreamed up with your friend and a couple other writers. Um, and so I think it made us, uh, even more eager to do the work to really love the show itself so that it felt like it was worth asking people to take that risk. Did making a TV show mean that you have a little extra padding where you've been able to buy something nice for yourself that you wouldn't otherwise been able to? I, what a cool question. <laughs> um, I, you know, independent. Well, I think I talked. We, me and Mahershala talked about this on the interview that like making a small film is not profitable at all. Um, television does pay better. You know, like I, I feel really good about what what I what I made. And television definitely, you know, if you do it for a long time, you can be a rich person. Um, but I think I'm still in this like man. The, the last 15 years, we're just scraping by. And then you have a, and then you have a great year and you're like, oh, that's fantastic. But I still have poor man's mentality about money. Like I, I don't spend a dime because um, I don't have any faith that more is coming. Yeah. Uh, and so I've, I've been getting pressure from my folks and from, um, you know, my girl to like, you know, get a nice car. You know, like the whole time we were doing the show, I was driving like my 2008 bucket, like Honda Civic with peeling paint that like smells funny, <laughs> you know, like. And my, and, you know, and like my people that work for me are pulling up in like Benzes and Audis and Lexuses and shit. And I'm like, I'm the showrunner. <laughs> um, you know, but I, 
I have very like clear goals for myself for the show. I was like, I'm trying, I'm trying to buy a house. I just want to own a house. Do you want to buy a house in LA or in the Bay? I would love to buy a house in the Bay. Um, I, my folks are there and they're getting older and my, my niece is two and a half and my sister is there. And, um, I feel more grounded when I'm there. Um, a lot of my friends are here in LA too. So I think there's a lot of desire to kind of be in two places at once. Mm-hmm. And so I, anytime I look at houses just to like dream, I mean, we're all like addicted to Redfin and like Zillow and shit. Cause that's how you know you're in your, that's how you know you're in your thirties. And I'm like, Oh my God, look at these high ceilings. <laughs> like, 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 who am I? You were a rapper. You remember? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Um, but I think the, the fun of like living at home would be to be around the, the, the folks that I grew up around. But I, I also, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes just think about like, we're sometimes when you move home out of the desire to like be closer to those things, you also wonder like, have I become a different person and yeah. will that make me revert back? in a way that maybe looks good on paper, but isn't actually good for my humanity. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I, I wrestle with that. I wrestle with going, going back to the Bay or sort of continuing on and seeing where life takes me. Rafael, you are navigating your distance with the Bay. <laughs> I'm, I'm navigating my distance with, with all things um, f- from my younger times, <laughs> you know, the expectations of a younger you loom, loom big, the, the, where you need to be at this point in life and what your friends thought of you when you were a teenager and what you said you were going to do and what you actually did or didn't do. Those things really stay with other people sometimes more than they stay with you. Yeah. And, um, and they're powerful. They're powerful forces if they're omnipresent all the time. So I, I, I like to go home most often in small doses Yeah. and then, uh, and then get back to the bird's eye view of myself. Thanks again to Rafael Casal and Mahershala Ali. Mahershala has also been busy. He filmed a movie called Swan Song with Glenn Close and Aquafina during the pandemic. And he's been cast as Blade in the upcoming Marvel movie. We'd love to have him back as a guest host anytime. For now, I'll let him wrap things up. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Emily Nadal. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. And listen, I'm not big into podcasts, but this is one of the good ones. Make sure you subscribe. You can follow me, Mahershala Ali, on Instagram if you're bored. What scares you uh, about the next three to five years. I I just don't know what I'm doing. I say this thing all the time that I keep getting through another door and I keep thinking that the adults are in that room Mm. and then I get in there and it's just me and my friends. (laughs) We're like, oh, it's the next door. All the grown-ups who know what they're doing are in that room. I'm Herschel Ali and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. (laughs) 